The United States government has seized control of insurance giant AIG, also known as American International Group, in an unprecedented $85 billion bailout. The Federal Reserve made the deal Tuesday to save AIG from collapse in what the New York Times describes as the most radical intervention in private business in the central bank's history. This comes on the heels of a government bailout just over a week ago of mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and six months after the Fed bailed out Bear Stearns by helping to finance a sale to J.P. Morgan Chase. So how are we to make sense of the collapse of these investment giants? What is the role of deregulation? And who have been the major players behind deregulation? How is the current financial crisis similar to the savings and loan collapse of the 1980s? And finally, to what extent might white-collar criminality be behind these collapses? Joining us to talk about this is Professor David Friedrichs. Professor David Friedrichs is the author of uh, over 100 or so scholarly articles, and he is uh, the author of the much-celebrated uh, trusted criminals, white collar criminality in contemporary society, and he joins us this morning from Scranton. Good morning, Professor Friedrichs. Hi, Dave. How are you, Chad? I'm good. How are you this morning? I'm fine. So let us uh, begin. You know, the news is such an interesting thing because it just springs headlines or scandals or uh, events onto the public uh, without really providing any context, and so. Uh, one would think that there is just this current wave of bank collapses that came out of thin air or investment giant collapses that came out of thin air. So could you begin by maybe setting some kind of context? Did this just happen or has this been uh, a problem in the making? Well, this is uh, part of uh, There is a long history. I think there's no question. And in that sense, it has some unique dimensions um, as any such new crisis will, but it also uh, brings back some of the earlier crises. Now, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm a criminologist and I've written a book on white-collar crime and I've been involved with that area. This is a large, complex um, enormous financial crisis we're in the middle of, and it has many different dimensions. But uh, my most useful contribution then uh, is to focus particularly on those aspects that uh, interconnect with white-collar crime. So I don't want to pretend that uh, uh, I'm going to, um, or would be appropriate to discuss the uh, many other uh, dimensions of this. But as you mentioned, uh, it is reminiscent of a uh, huge uh, crisis in the 1980s when the thrifts collapsed, putting American taxpayers as they are once again on the hook for billions of dollars in terms of a bailout. It also um, is uh, not so different from uh, a more recent uh, crisis, of course, what has been widely referred to as the corporate scandal, starting with the end Enron case, uh, the collapse and bankruptcy of Enron, WorldCom, Global Crossings, and other companies. What they have in common 
is that at the heart of uh, each of these uh, crises, in the present one, there were fundamental misrepresentations uh, that were made on many different levels. And while uh, I'm not saying this whole crisis today is wholly driven by fraud, unfortunately, I think fraud on many different levels uh, is involved here, just as it was in the fraudulent um, misrepresentations of the corporate financings in these earlier cases I mentioned and in terms of the uh, uh, thrifts, the uh, wide range and various forms of fraudulent activity that, that were going on there. So that that's what it uh, unfortunately has in common and what's um, very disheartening is that rather than fully absorbing the lessons from these earlier very expensive uh, crises and putting into place um, proper oversight uh, and uh, mechanisms that might minimize the chances that something like this would happen again. Uh, we haven't done that, so we're, we're back in another very, very serious crisis. So when we talk about uh, fraud and misrepresentation, we're talking about the kind of uh, Enron type of fraud where uh, representatives from these large firms would uh, misstate what their, uh, the amount of their assets or their earning potentials, or how does that work? Well, exactly. They were uh, misrepresenting uh, what the true financial statement of the uh, corporation. In Enron's case, one way, of course, they used that was moving uh, losses, um, hundreds of millions, off the books, so to speak, so that they could meet the uh, expectations of the Wall Street stock analysts and keep the stock price going up. And, of course, they had the uh, key players from uh, Kenneth Lay and Jeff skilling on down, uh, they had a very direct incentive for doing so because, of course, they held uh, and sold, as it happens, uh, um, huge amounts of that stock and enriched themselves, which brings me to, I think, one central feature in this case as uh, in the present situation that also applied there. What, as criminologists, you and I would say a, a criminogenic incentives. Uh, in the case of the earlier corporations, uh, they had a strong motivation to make the numbers meet uh, the expectations of analysts, uh, however that would be done, uh, because they greatly profited in many ways from doing so. And what is parallel here is that um, starting with the, uh, for example, on the subprime um, mortgage loans, which of course were a key piece to what has happened, uh, from the originators of the loans right up to the uh, investment bankers uh, at Merrill Lynch and, uh, and uh, Bear Stearns and uh, Lehman and so forth and so on, that they were being paid up front in the, in the form of multi-million dollar, sometimes $10 million annual bonuses, hundreds of millions of dollars for, in effect, uh, getting these uh, loans out. What they were not, of course, uh, really focusing upon were the uh, high risk uh, involved and the possibility that the loans wouldn't be paid off and that the whole house of cards 
would collapse, which which has in fact happened. So, but there was built into this um, a, a a criminogenic uh, incentive to, in effect, um, uh, misrepresent uh, uh, what was uh, what they had, uh, what they what they were holding, what they were getting out, what risks were involved, because they were very richly rewarded for doing so. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Professor David Friedrichs. He's the author of Trusted Criminals as well as uh, Law in Our Lives, uh, which I should point out is the book widely used uh, in our law classes at, uh, at our university. So there you have it. But uh, it seems like uh, each era of uh, Wall Street scandal uh, has been preceded by a uh, a political climate of deregulation. Is that a fair assessment? Well, yes, yeah, certainly uh, this one, as well as you're correct, uh, these uh, earlier crises uh, can be linked to the passing of um, either, on the one hand, laws like gone uh, Saint Germain and uh, the the Graham Rudman laws, which basically uh, yes, they they um, they they pull back on regulatory oversight, and uh, the second uh, piece of this, of course, is a philosophy of the administration uh, in the White House uh, of um, leaving people alone, so to speak, to make money on Wall Street in these corporations um, any way they can. Uh, and partly, of course, because um, these uh, entities, the corporations, uh, uh, in the case of the Wall Street investment bankers, are very strong supporters in, in, of, of the, um, the political parties, of the political uh, figures uh, in, in question. So, so that is uh, certainly a part of it. But yes, uh, clearly, um, one of the problems here was there, there was not uh, adequate uh, Oversight. We presently have a two trillion dollar uh, hedge fund um, sector, of course, that is also has very little regulatory oversight, and it's uh, kind of frightening uh, to contemplate um, what um, kinds of misrepresentations uh, will surface with regard to the um, the hedge funds, but. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the deregulatory philosophy on the one hand, and on the other hand, very passage of very specific uh, deregulatory um, uh, legal initiatives, uh, both have uh, created an environment which uh, makes it almost inevitable that uh, uh, people will take advantage uh, of this uh, and will have this uh, take advantage in in various ways, some crossing the line of being illegal and some being in that gray area, but uh, will have devastating uh, consequences as we have now. Can you tell our listeners, uh, if you if you can, uh, about the Glass-Steagall Act? That seems to be uh, mentioned a lot these days, and it was something that was signed uh, by a Democratic presidential administration. Well, that's true, and uh, as always uh, is true, uh, this the, the the blame for this uh, can be distributed uh, different parties in in different uh, entities, some more so than than others. But basically, um, for a long time, uh, the um, there was a, a division uh, in terms of uh, what kinds of uh, financial uh, deals um, banks could engage in, and basically, Glass Steagall 
removed uh, the walls between um, the different components of banking, the lending, investing, and so forth and so on. The basic problem, without getting into the uh, complexities of this, is that it created uh, inherent conflict of interest. And the whole idea precisely of um, having a separation in terms of the different functions that banking entities broadly define carried out was to uh, minimize those conflict of interest. Indeed, all kinds of conflicts of interest uh, are involved here. One that has received significant commentary is the fact that you have these uh, rating agencies like Moody's um, uh, that... Um, Standard and poor that is supposed to uh, give uh, honest, credible uh, assessments of uh, uh, the uh, trustworthiness, you might say, of investment instruments that investors can make their decisions on. But it's been pointed out that these um, rating agencies had fundamental conflicts of interest. First, that uh, they were paid by the uh, firms that they were rating, and so rather than have the firm go to a competitor, they were often, in effect, influenced in their ratings by wanting to keep that firm's uh, business. Secondly, they were perhaps fearful of uh, giving a lower rating and starting a run on uh, some particular bank or investment entity. But the point is that, unfortunately, they were structured in such a way that they were not really giving uh, truly independent assessments. That's very parallel to what happened with the Enron crisis, where Anderson was actually earning uh, far more, significantly more, I should say, from Enron for consultant work than it was being paid to audit the books. And as a consequence of that, the auditing uh, was uh, not reliable, not credible. And, of course, as everybody knows, um, and the Anderson Company was ultimately prosecuted and uh, collapsed as a consequence of that. And when we talk about uh, the kind of risk-taking that uh, we see so often in, in banking, uh, the separation that you talked about from right. the Glass-Steagall Act. So just to, to give an analogy, would that be akin to uh, a parent taking a child's college fund to the racetrack? You don't gamble with uh, a, a college fund. You keep that separate from any kind of, you know, spending money or taking a weekend to Vegas or, or Atlantic City or something. Is that kind of... Well, there's certainly some kind of uh, analogy there that that's a bad idea, as you say. <laughs> and uh, this was uh, a, a bad idea because um, I think it's becoming very clear. It did... It did uh, create fundamental conflicts of uh, interest which opened up opportunities uh, for um, uh, engaging in, at the end of the day, often misrepresented, fraudulent uh, arrangements. Some of these, it's been commented that some of these uh, derivatives and uh, securitization devices were so complex that perhaps the investment uh, uh, banking CEOs and themselves didn't fully understand what they help. But that, that generates, I mean, there is another problem in this and one that I have addressed in a forthcoming article that um, uh, was entitled Exorbitant CEO uh, Pay, Just Reward or Grand Theft. You can infer what side of that question I, I, I come down on because um, as everybody I think now knows that the top CEOs of 
corporations in this country and, of course, the investment bankers have been um, getting huge uh, compensation in the terms of uh, salary, in terms of uh, bonuses, stock options, and then if they do a poor job, uh, severance pay. Uh, in the case of uh, Stanley O'Neill, when it was disclosed last year that uh, Merrill Lynch uh, was on the hook for billions and billions of dollars of, uh, of uh, subprime uh, loans that had uh, tanked, he was forced out, and he was forced out with a $160 million uh, payment. <laughs> it was characterized in different ways, but Many people would say this is utterly bizarre for, for doing a bad job to be rewarded uh, in that way. Now, as everybody knows, the Lehman firm in business 158 years just collapsed. The stock in a year and a half went from being worth $85 to the other day, 21 cents. That's quite a drop. I wonder how many people are aware that the CEO, Richard Fold, uh, last year earned $45 million over the last 15 years or so, he has earned at least half a billion dollars for what? <laughs> Doing a very bad job at the end of the day for bringing his firm to destruction, uh, thousands of workers um, losing their jobs, and of course us taxpayers being on the hook for the um, very poor um, investments that uh, his firm made. Um, there's something very fundamentally wrong with this, okay? And this goes back to something I said earlier, that there's been a kind of criminogenic uh, reward structure that, in effect, the people in the center of this, from CEOs down, are rewarded for the upfront gains, regardless of how risky, how um, sensible they are in the long term. In all of the discussion we're having now, has anybody encountered a reference that these uh, people will give back <laughs> the money that they, uh, quote, earned, unquote, on the basis of um, uh, fundamentally um, uh, mis misrepresented uh, misrepresentations, or if you will, fraudulent representations. Well, you just raised so many important issues. I mean, one of the the questions one has to ask is, uh, we have a situation it seems where uh, we uh, privatize profit but socialize risk because it's it's the taxpayers you know we like to call it the FDIC or we like to call it all of these different uh, these different you know alphabet soup kind of uh, labels for who does the bailing out but it's really the taxpayers who are left paying the bill and uh, does this create um, a Wall Street that is in a sense criminogenic it absolutely is. In first place, um, this has often been this has been widely commented upon for, for many years. Uh, Adam Smith, the famous uh, 18th-century Scottish philosopher, who in the Wealth of Nations is given the primary credit for having articulated the theory of a free market type of economy, he wouldn't recognize the, quote, capitalism, unquote, that we have today because the original model was you were an entrepreneur, you went out there, you won or you lost. And uh, as you have uh, said in your comments, basically it's a heads I win, tails you lose structure now that as long as the investment uh, banking houses, as long as Enron and WorldCom 
were apparently seeming to make money. They wanted to be left alone uh, and uh, to take uh, what I would call obscene uh, profits, obscene uh, salaries and bonuses and stock options. Uh, when they get in trouble, <laughs> all of a sudden uh, they, they turn to, to us and we're supposed to bail them out. This is nothing new. This happened when Chrysler many years ago had to be bailed out. Uh, it happened with the Lockheed uh, Company. Uh, and now, of course, uh, it has occurred uh, in connection with at least some um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, again, with CEOs uh, claiming they're entitled to $24 million after um, leading us into this situation. Quite bizarre. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely correct. The whole thing is incredibly skewed. And that suggests that the rhetoric, some of it coming from uh, political candidates today, this is about greedy people, bad apples, uh, uh, misses the point that this problem will surface again and again with catastrophic effects uh, unless the basic structure that you and I agree on, a criminogenic structure, a structure of um, um, rewards and safeguards, uh, is transformed. Somebody uh, yesterday in the New York Times has a uh, ad piece that rather than uh, all that money over the last uh, few years going for bonuses and huge salaries, shouldn't a huge percentage of it have gone into, in effect, a self-insurance if these very risky investments by any measure that these firms were taken went south, which is in fact what happened. In other words, why are we taxpayers on the hook for $800 billion potentially uh, and meanwhile uh, people who uh, are still living in their 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollar uh, condos or mansions on the basis of the money they took out, which turns out to have been un 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 misrepresented and uh, financial information, um, uh, why, why weren't they required, if they were taking these risks and claiming that they were uh, producing um, this kind of value, why wasn't the downside, you might say, why weren't they responsible for the downside? Why are we? Well, and it seems that uh, the public is victimized twice because if, if there are members of the public that own stock in some of these firms, they've lost the value of their stock, but then they end up paying for the bailout in their taxes anyway. Well, and I wonder if twice is an underestimate, uh, John, because you're right. Uh, we're on the hook as taxpayers, um, people directly and indirectly, of course, in pension funds. Uh, all of us are uh, affected there. We have mutual funds uh, or any kind of stock investments we're affected uh, for. Uh, we weren't provided, you might say, couldn't have realistically. We weren't provided with, with a a credible assessment of what, what we had invested in. Uh, and also, uh, even if uh, you're not one of the one or two million uh, homeowners who are, um, are losing their homes, um, you're affected uh, by uh, all of this because uh, if their homes foreclosed in your neighborhood, if you are relocating, you have to sell your home um, in many, many markets, as we know, including Southern California, as you well know where you are, the uh, value has, has gone down greatly through no 
fault of your own, but uh, in part because of the uh, whole dynamic of, of, of what was going on here. So, uh, yes, I think that ordinary uh, people, and then losing jobs. Okay, so, so you, you could say that ordinary Americans, uh, in, in some cases, are being victimized multiple times as workers, if they lose their jobs as homeowners if the value of their home uh, has declined to say nothing of whether they lose their home as investors, direct or indirect, uh, in pension funds and the like, and as taxpayers. Those are at least four ways. There might be others. Wow. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's it's daunting. Um, yes, We're it is. We're uh, running uh, just about out of time, but I have a couple last questions, and uh, one of which is, it seems that the solution now is, uh, or, or the trend seems to be the consolidation of remaining firms. And the question is, isn't that setting up another dangerous scenario with Bank of America purchasing, what was it, Merrill Lynch? And it, you now have a, a marketplace that uh, seems to have less competition. Well, uh, you're absolutely uh, correct. First place, unfortunately and sadly, at this point, there are no good answers. There's really a question of um, uh, which of uh, the um, uh, not terribly uh, appealing options uh, one should move um, in. But uh, one reason we're in the crisis is precisely that uh, too many firms got too large and Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae examples, uh, too large to be allowed to fail because the effects would be too devastating. So when uh, Bank of America takes over Merrill and it gets even larger, not only is there the point you made about diminishing uh, competition, which creates a whole new set of problems, um, but of course uh, as well that it becomes an entity that uh, cannot be allowed to fail. So once again, if it gets in trouble, you and I as the taxpayers are uh, almost obliged to um, bail it out. So um, unfortunately, uh, the, the, there is no easy uh, solution to all of this. Um, I hope if there's any uh, upside to what's happening now, it will create uh, something many progressive white-collar crime scholars have been waiting for a long time and thought might have happened with the Enron World Com case and didn't, but maybe happens with this. Enough of a shock. <laughs> collectively, to first place create a consciousness that, yes, we need fundamental change, not just change of the personnel. We need, we need fundamental change of the system, just as the Depression shocked Americans uh, into supporting most Americans the New Deal, which was indeed a fundamental uh, change. And we need, we need fundamental change in, in how the uh, oversight of um, the, these financial markets uh, is, is structured. It is very clear. We've learned a very, very painful lesson, and we'll be learning it uh, further going forward that uh, what we have had in place, the philosophy of deregulation, the um, kind of free market uh, logic uh, has in, in this world we live in today, uh, is, is not, does not work. And uh, so uh, the only real uh, solution is uh, a much more uh, oversight. And uh, as a criminologist, hopefully, uh, again, not a question of bad apples, but holding the, the parties who uh, have uh, uh, made the key decisions accountable, accountable in civil courts and in some cases in criminal courts. Well, and that's how I would like to, uh, to end off as a criminologist. Can you uh, talk about, finally, 
the potential crimes without you know having to name name particular names the potential crimes that have that might have been committed we mentioned fraud before what is that the only crime that has occurred or well fraud is a very broad uh, term there have been um, over the last year and a half uh, FBI investigations there will be indictments there have been some already there have been arrests for example of um, investment bankers from Bear Stearns there have been indictments there will be some trials uh, there's a fear partly of uh, perhaps uh, putting resources in going that direction and generating even more fear among investors of uh, that uh, that uh, <laughs> this crime at the center of this so so it's a, it's a complex thing to to proceed with that but the 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 basic crimes involved here are different forms of fraud even some of the bars yes there's no question uh, misrepresented their own finances to to get the loans but in many cases starting with the originators uh, people who really couldn't afford homes and loans and didn't clearly understand what they were borrowing and what they were on the hook for were induced to make these loans and then right up the line into the um, um, purchase of these um, uh, packages of, of, of uh, subprime uh, loans by the investment housings, there were um, fundamental misrepresentations. Which of these crossed the line in clearly um, violating with criminal intent um, the law, and which in those gray areas of um, poor judgment calls and business calls uh, will have to be sorted out. But there's no question in my mind that um, from the bottom to the top there have been uh, uh, significant uh, uh, violations of various forms of um, fraud, which is indeed uh, criminal conduct. And uh, I lied. I do have one final question, which is, uh, you know, I I think the title of your book, Trusted Criminals, is just, it's such a perfect uh, phrase or expression of exactly what's going on. Um, just l- not to end on a, such a, a negative note, but just tell our listeners what is meant by the term trusted criminals and tell our listeners the, the, the magnitude of white-collar criminality in comparison to street crime. Well, that's a, 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 a very good question. I, I, I tried to come up with a, uh, a title, and I did come up with Trust in Criminals, because when you're in a inner-city neighborhood and you're followed by a suspicious um, young man um, who, in fact, maybe wants to mug you, 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 don't, you don't trust them. Street criminals are not trusted. You lock your windows. You don't trust possible burglars. Um, but... But the fact is we do trust, by and large, the investment banking houses we invest with and uh, uh, professionals and uh, corporations we work for and buy products from and so forth and so on. And that trust, tragically, as we see in these cases, is in fundamental ways violated. I also talk in the book about the fact that we are taken in by the fact they're respectable looking. They wear uh, suits and ties. You trust them in ways you don't trust as, 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 as street people. And I also... Only in my book talk about risk, and the risk, of course, is at the uh, center of this, that they take risk where they get, as we said early in the conversation, uh, they benefit from the upside, and then they pass the downside of the risk on to other parties. The final point is that, uh, not to diminish uh, street crime, I lived in an inner-city neighborhood when I was a graduate student. I had knives pulled on me. I was burglarized. Uh, I don't diminish uh, the, the trauma of street crime and the losses, but... 
bank robberies are up, but the losses, certainly in economic terms uh, and in other terms as well, are uh, uh, far, far smaller than the devastating uh, economic losses as a result of what we've been talking about for the last half hour, but also people are emotionally traumatized and um, uh, people literally are sick <laughs> and made ill and, uh, and, and the aspects of this that uh, they, they're, they're violent aspects as, as, as well. Um, it, is, it can be a violent crime, white-collar crime, corporate crime as well. So, uh, yes, it, it is, it, the magnitude is in many ways, from many points of view, um, far greater than the uh, lower-level uh, drug dealers who fill our prisons today. We have over two million people in prison, very few of them investment bankers. Um, and I'm not diminishing their offenses, but, but in the larger scheme of things, um, they have a far more modest effect than what we're looking at today. The book is Trusted Criminals, White Collar Criminality in Contemporary Society. Professor David Friedrichs, it's always a pleasure having you on the program, and uh, it's great talking to you again. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's been a pleasure being on this uh, program with you. Thank and you very much. Take care.